Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen, and on this week's episode, we welcome the OG of Canadian Venture Capital, Matt Roberts, to discuss the launch of his new VC fund, Command Capital. Matt and I go back to the beginning of his journey growing up in the Roberts household, where he witnessed firsthand the creation of one of Canada's greatest tech visionaries and entrepreneurs, his father, John Roberts, and how that influenced his upbringing. Next, we dig into his time working for legendary tech investor Terry Matthews and the lessons he learned from Terry as an angel investor, and how Matt ended up leading the corporate development group at GAN Systems and helped raise their first few rounds of funding. Next, we jump into Matt's role at BDC IT Fund and Scale Up Ventures and some of the lessons he learned leading some amazing investments during his time at those two firms and how Matt has seen the Canadian venture capital landscape evolve over the last decade since he first started in the industry. Lastly, Matt shares why he decided to launch his newest VC fund, Command Capital, with partner David Dufresne and what he can expect from the duo over the next couple of years. Now, let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Matt Roberts from Command Capital. Thanks for joining me in the tank today, Matt. Thanks for having me, my friend. This is going to be quite confusing with two Matts in the studio, but we'll give it our best shot. You know, some might say, Matt, that you are the OG of startups and venture investing in Canada. At least that's the way I think about you. But before we dig into all that fun stuff, can you tell us a bit about your childhood growing up in one of the you know most pioneering technology families of Canada and how that shaped your life in startups and technology moving forward? My father is, or was, uh, he's passed away a few years ago now, um, a founder of a semiconductor company that at the time was quite well known. Uh, it was called uh, Calmos or Tundra. And he was the early employee of Canada's perhaps first semiconductor company way back uh, after he graduated from university. So he came to Canada to go work there. Many of his colleagues were the sort of the original founders of tech companies in Ottawa and in Canada. And so they were sort of like you know, the father figures out there, you know, you have a barbecue in the backyard and you run into a guy like Terry Matthews or a guy named Mike Copeland. And as a child, you didn't really have a sense of who these people were. But as you sort of grew up, you sort of had a sense that they were they were building something important and interesting. And occasionally you see a newspaper article and a picture of the guy from the backyard barbecue and you think, oh, that's interesting. And so working with my dad, uh, I think you look up to your parents, right? I'm sure I'm sure you do too. And then you get a sort of sense of is what they're doing interesting to me? And for me, it was. So I sort of just tried to follow in those footsteps and eventually it led me to where I am today. And that was, yeah, what age would you say? Like you started really looking up to what they were doing as really cool stuff. I don't know, 10 or 12. It sort of before that, it was kind of like a little bit too far. Like I knew my dad was a founder and started his own company because occasionally our, our, our summer vacations got canceled when it wasn't a good year at the business. But, you know, um, Disney World, not, not, no Disney World this year sort of yeah, thing, yeah. right? I was like 10 or 12. I got my, I got my own computer and it sort of led me down to the, wait a minute, my, you know, my dad makes computer chips, there's chips in this computer and you started to sort of get a sense of how cool this could be. And then you started looking around at what else was going on and, I think it was about 13 when I got my first sort of summer job in tech, if you will, beyond just sort of, you know, mowing lawns and clearing sidewalks right. in the winter. You're like, wait, my dad's building the guts of this machine that I'm playing around with and playing games. Yeah. On. Yeah. And so like I said, Hey, you know, maybe, you know, he'd sort of done like, you know, science projects with me around electronics and stuff. But like the, the cool stuff was, you knew a guy named Doug Sweeten who'd worked with him at one point and did uh, reverse engineering of ships. He thought that'd be a good way for me to learn how they work was, was, you know, kind of look inside them and, you know, they're, they're tiny, but these, there was this company that would reverse engineer them. And so what they do is they take a, a camera with a very, on a microscope and take pictures of the chips and they blow up the, the photograph to, you know, sort of a foot by a foot and put, uh, and, and, and in sections across a floor. So you'd have like 40 of these across the floor. And then you trace paper out the lines of the chips to figure out how they worked. Um, and then you you take that trace paper and put it into a CAD machine, and then at the at, uh, you know after three or four weeks of work, you'd have a semiconductor like chart, and you'd figured out how the other guy had built a chip. And so you'd have all these great engineers standing behind me, sort of saying, "Well, this is what this is doing. This is what this is doing." So you sort of slowly, by osmosis and a mentorship from those guys, learned how a chip is designed and how it works. Right. A pretty amazing group of people to grow up around. But, you know, yeah. besides the success your father had, obviously, in building and, and creating the semiconductor industry in Canada, he also, you know, grew up poor and had, you know, a lot of luck along the way that he talks about and you talked about, you know, in uh, in the writings that you've written about him. Like, how did that shape who you are today? It sort of gives me a sense of, like, anybody can do this with the right mentorship and the right opportunities. And, you know, our job is not to be gatekeepers, but to make sure that, you know, we're, we're enabling talent and people who know what they're doing to do what they're doing. My dad 
would never have gone to university if it hadn't been for the fact that sort of the head of his sort of uh, manufacturing line, my dad was an electrician's assistant and he, uh, the head of the, at the Hoover vacuum cleaner company in South Wales. And they, they'd had a strike and they'd, they'd raised money from the, from Hoover vacuum cleaners to send their bright young team members to university. And it, it was his, uh, it was his boss who sort of identified him and said, I'm going to send you to university after, after this. So if I hadn't been for that, my dad would never have become an engineer, ever have gone to university, never come to Canada. Uh, so we buy Hoover vacuum cleaners in this in this house. You buy Hoover vacuum so, cleaners. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's not the same company really anymore, but there's a little bit of, you know, just to remind myself of where it all started. That's a good thing to do. But you also got to work with, you know, one of the most successful entrepreneurs, one of the, uh, I believe, Welsh's first billionaires, Terry Matthews, as an analyst. You know, what was that like? Uh, so Terry, uh, for, for those who don't know, is Canada's most successful tech entrepreneur. There's a lot of people who claim a title that's close by, but but Terry's started more companies and made more money than when I was growing up. The company at the time was a company called Newbridge Networks, which was his second major company. And it was, I guess, the Shopify of the 90s. It was like, there was Nortel, there was sort of the, you know, the old stodgy Nortel and attached to Bell. And then you had Newbridge Networks, which was run by entrepreneurs. It, you know, it didn't have a, it wasn't part of Bell coming up out of nowhere and taking over the world slowly. And it had two or 3000 people working for it at the time, mostly on, I, I, at that point on software, like we're doing software testing. Another way of sort of learning uh, how things work is to watch where, where things fail. So software testing was a good, good early start in the software development space for me. Newbridge became this huge thing. It was like my value to about six to $8 billion. It was, it was a huge company at the time, uh, headquartered in, in the West end of Ottawa, right near my house. So Working for Terry was kind of like working for uh, Canada's, you know, tech industry in one person, right? You just walk to work every day and know that you're working underneath like one of the most successful entrepreneurs at all time. I, I walked to work and then uh, and one day uh, Terry saw me waiting for the bus because it was cold and I didn't want to walk anymore, so he picked me up in his in his car and drove me into work. And then I thought maybe for now on I should just stand at that <laughs> bus stop. And, and uh, it turns out Terry doesn't drive down by that bus stop all that much. But eventually I became like the youngest manager at Newbridge at about 16, 17 years old, 17, living with your parents and earning at the time, like a significant, like manager's wage, which was like, I don't know, for $42,000, $43,000. Yeah. I guess you were managing people older than you too. I was a project coordinator. So you didn't, I didn't have any direct reports. I had lots of people reported to me based on the project I was managing. So I'd manage a project. So I guess I was ostensibly their, their boss in, in the context of that project, but they were all they all really work for other people and we're just working on the segments of this project that I had. Well, working around you and working through you, I guess, is the way to put Absolutely. it. That's still pretty yeah. impressive at 17 years old. You know, you also were the second full-time employee at GAN Systems, a company your dad helped start, uh, which was also recently acquired by Infineon for $830 million. I mean, can you share a bit of the insight on how you helped that company raise its first few rounds of capital during your time as head of Corp Dev and how you shape your views on venture capital? I'd worked, I'd gotten to work for Terry's family office after I graduated from school. So I kind of felt I knew the, 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 the tech venture market in Canada through, through Terry. Um, but Ottawa went through a huge convulsion. Ontario and venture capital went through a huge convulsion, uh, sort of in the, the late aughts. Most people don't talk about it. There's like Ottawa in the late nineties was like the number one tech ecosystem in Canada, bar none, something like 45% of all tech deals were done in Ottawa. Um, and that's obviously not the case today. The sort of the final nail in the coffin, if you will, was uh, when Nortel went bankrupt. All of the all of the Nortel engineers had been sort of angel investors and had done quite well. And they had pension plans. So while they would invest out of their RSPs or the cash they'd made elsewhere, they, they always knew they had this pension in the background to sort of keep them going. So they didn't, they used that as play money and had the pension in the background, right? But then like Nortel goes bankrupt and the pension becomes a big question mark. And so suddenly those those sort of like side fund money that they were playing with is now actually material money and may, might be all they can live on, right? And so the angel market just fell apart in Ottawa. Um, so you couldn't raise any seed money for anybody. Back in those days, that's when Shopify was raising. And they raised their money from restaurateurs and like, you know, local uh, dentists. And the same thing happened sort of with GAN. We sort of lost the network of people who understood what semiconductors we were building. And we had to start rallying money from sort of real estate investment firms and things like that. The people who were really out of the context of it. It's hard to find those people too, I bet. 
It was, and, and certainly in, in 08, 09, it was really tough for obvious reasons. The financial crisis was in full swing, and, and I don't think people remember that it, you know, it, it on Wikipedia it says it, it took 12 months, and in my recollection, it was like a three-year digging out of a uh, of a big problem. So, you know, we had that problem, and then, and then we also had the issue that the VCs were, were kind of just scarce, um, sort of in 2009, 2010 to 2011. We, we Capital uh, out of uh, Vancouver, um, and they're still around today, was well known for, for backing early stage sort of tech companies in the sort of quasi-clean tech space. And we, so we raised money from them and we raised money from Rockport Capital. Um, but it took from the first meeting we had with Chryslix, I think my first meeting with them was in February of 2010. We closed the series, like the seed series A, whatever you want to call it. It was a seed, it'd be a seed round today. It was the series A then. We raised that money um, and closed it in October of 2011. So over over 17 months to get that one out. And what was the round size and valuation just for a sense of? So it was, it was 5 million. Um, five million US. I think it was on a on a eight pre or nine pre. There was like it was tranched on milestones based on whether or not the 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 chips that came back from the fab worked. Uh, so had the first batch of chips not 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 worked, we would have uh, uh, milestone based funding. Those are good ones. It's it, hey, they're 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 back, baby. Um, and <laughs> and so you know, it was it was it was a it was a sort of like. They they had an option for another three at the same pricing if they wanted if we could find a good use for it uh, which they took it was like they took a good chunk of the company at the front end yeah well I mean obviously it worked out and and it helped you get your first real institutional adventure gig working at BDC yeah well sort of I so I, I'd been I um I'd, when I'd worked for Terry as an analyst before that I'd been on a like an observer on a board with a guy named Ron Warburton who's still at the BDC today Ron's leading their seat practice um over there now so. Ron, Ron, uh, when I was going to go do my MBA, I went to Ron and said, "Hey, should I do an MBA?" And he he sort of nodded his head and said, "Yeah, in this market, everybody should just go away for you, come back." And so he he saw me. Uh, I'd introduced him to Shopify in 2007. That was kind of like my my famous thing um, in the venture community in Canada way back when, 15 years ago. I was I was the young analyst at at Terry's family office introducing every VC in Canada to Shopify. Um, sort of two, a year or two before they did their their Series A, uh, nobody invested. Nobody took it too seriously, unfortunately for me. But Ron sort of remembered that and said, "Hey, why don't you come work with me at BDC? We'll we'll find something for you here." And so the day after, literally the day after I uh, the GAN Systems deal closed, I joined BDC. Wow. Wait. So did Terry's office, family office, invest in Shopify when you were there? Nope. So Terry, Terry just came to me, and that was that was the complaint. I so I took it took the deal to Terry. Um, they were doing an angel round. It was this was uh, 2008, early two, uh, 2008. And I went to Terry and I said, "Hey, there's this guy. These guys are doing this e-commerce company. You should take a look at it." And so he looked at the pitch. Um, I don't think he met Toby at that time. And he said, "You know, Matt, I got a lot of things going on right now. This is not. I don't need another one." The world is blowing up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was like everything was on fire. The real estate market was on fire. The and and we and 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 Wesley Clover, the, the firm I worked for. Had a lot of uh, a lot of like real estate holdings as well, so kind of like let's just pause any new investments at that time. Prudent thing to do, of course, but yeah, prudent, prudent, but you know, in hindsight. Um, and then and then at the same time, I said, well, can I introduce it to our friends, the other VCs? We know he said yeah, absolutely, go call them. So I called most of the major VCs in Canada at the time and a few U.S. ones, and nobody was really interested at the time. Yeah, fair enough. But you joined Ron at BDC IT Fund in 2011 uh, to help lead their IT fund. It made some pretty exciting investments during those years. You know, How did your time at BDC help your thought process on being an institutional investor and leading rounds? So family office uh, to institution is a pretty big change. Family office is great because you know exactly who the decision maker is. It's the person who you know, is in the family. Um, and then, you know, uh, institutions, it is a lot of sort of convincing your fa- uh, fellow colleagues through arm twisting and information and work. Um, so it, it was, it brought rigor to an investment process really. And the BDC is good at rigor. I'm sure uh, anybody who's listening would, would, uh, would accept that statement. Ron is probably one of the more underrated investors in Canada, in my opinion. Um, so, so a number of the colleagues I had while I was there, there are some phenomenal investors in the BDC, uh, general partner pool that just do excellent deals and do excellent returns. Harder to see with such a broad swath of people over there. 
like doing lots of economic development on um, at the same time as they're doing direct investments for, for, for capital return for the sake. So Ron, Ron, Steve Abrams, Andrew Lugston, uh, Robert Simon, that IT venture team that I worked with, I was the, the first non-partner hire they brought in. Um, and so it was a lot of sort of, and they'd been doing it for about eight years at that point. So it was a lot of, a lot of learnings for me to do it. And they did it through, through some of the, the worst times, right? They all started in sort of 2001, 2002. Right. And you got to write checks in a good time of 2011, 12, 13, just when like- We were blessed with capital um, and and the and the sort of the envelope to go to go forth and and, and spend um, and find. And so we, we got great deals in, in that portfolio, I think. And you saw some good exits too. We have. Uh, we had some great exits then and we, we will, we have some great logos today. That, that, that's the, the 2012, it's a 2012 vintage, 2011, 2012 vintage fund. Um, has done phenomenally well. The 2015 or 14 fund that we did afterwards, I think is probably going to be one of the, uh, probably that, that vintage is probably one of the best vintages in Canada right now. Yeah, fantastic. What are some of the biggest ones carrying a lot of the weight? We have Saunder in there. We have Hopper in there. Uh, so that's good. We have a, we have some good exits. We, we were in Wave Accounting as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a ton of great, great companies. Avic out of Waterloo uh, was one of the, the big exits for that. That's sort of a secondary to a private equity firm. Well, you obviously carried that momentum forward, you know, when you joined Kevin Kimsa and, and Kent Thexton at uh, scale, up, scale up in 2016. Kent and Kevin were both at Omer's with John. Uh, they were former coworkers of his. And so it was, it was an interesting time. The fund was created by the previous uh, Ontario Liberal government working with Nadir Mohammed. So Nadir Mohammed was the first non-Rogers um, family member to be the CEO of Rogers. Um, Nadir sort of took over after Ted passed away and sort of after his, his tenure as CEO sort of wanted to give back to Canada. Nadir was an immigrant to Canada, um, a volu- uh, sort of running the, uh, uh, what was Ryerson's university sort of uh, board at that time and wanted to see how he could, he could be more involved in sort of helping you know, entrepreneurs who were coming to Canada and, and were already here. So he convinced uh, Kathleen Wynn to back a fund that would also have corporate backing. So with his help, um, myself, uh, Kent, Kevin, uh, raised money from kind of the who's who of corporate Canada. So we have in fund one of uh, scale up, we have RBC, TD, Bank of Nova Scotia, Rogers, Bell, Antelis, uh, the Weston families, uh, an investor, Magna's an investor, Ryerson. It really was the who's who for a first time fund for sure. Absolutely. It was, you know, phenomenal P list. Uh, you know, we have, you know, and we have the regular sort of fund to fund teams. We have BDC in there as well. Uh, Kensington's in there through their BC Tech Fund, you know, a few others as well. So you you find you find uh, you find that you know we really punched above our weight on our first time fund, you know, closing at one hundred six. All all people with experience in the business, but certainly uh, with Nudir's help, it was it was much much easier to get it done. Absolutely. And what was it like going from an associate to a partner? And how did you change your risk taking approach as a fund investor with private LP capital instead of government capital at BDC? I don't think I changed. I, it doesn't feel like I, I think when you're changing yourself, you don't notice it as much. You know, it's like when you're exercising, you don't know the day-to-day incremental gains you're getting. Um, I don't know. I don't exercise. Oh, uh, well, we should, you look good for, for the <laughs> non-exercising. Um, I think, I think what, what allowed, what we had to think about there more, more carefully was our ability to manage the, um, the cycle of the fund. So the concentration risk was, was more paramount to us. The ability to find, uh, to maintain follow-on capital, uh, was stronger, you know, at the BDC, we did those things as well. But if we got, if we were over our skis or, or maybe miss uh, needing some capital there, there was no concern about our being, our being able to do capital calls because it's a bank and it's the government's bank. There's, there's always capital in the bank account. Whereas with us, you know, there are, there is a sort of a, a sort of an understanding of, of how we pull down the capital to invest and, and how close to our, uh, our total concentration risk we can do. And, and, you know, how we think about following capital from both uh, taking advantage of good, um, you know, one of our winners, but also making sure we have capital to play with should something sort of, you know, not work out and we need to sort of put capital at play to protect an investment or to or to double down on some of those bigger winners or, or just play with the big boys if they try and put a put structure around our next deal. Right. I mean, that's definitely a, a lot of what I would say is the biggest change when taking on private LP capital and running institutional fund. It's portfolio construction, it's reserve strategy, it's, you know, how to know what to hold back, but how to know when to press your bets. You know, it's very finite, the resources you have to deploy. So you got to think very hard. 
and then also dealing with your partners on what they want to do and coming to an agreement with them. With your partners, you're all, you, you all have to decide how you want to prioritize which deal and why. So it's, it can be very, it can be very rewarding in order to, to sort of have that sort of pushback from your colleagues. It can also be a real frustrating moment if you, if you, if you're not good at articulating why you think we should be doing this, right? So it forces you to, to raise your game on transparency and pushing data and information to your colleagues in a way that they can sort of understand it quickly because they're never going to be as deep into your deals as, as you might be yourself, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's why we tell our founders when they're pitching, you know, a, a principal or a junior partner, they need to empower that partner to sell that internally as best they can because they are your external sales team. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think most entrepreneurs have a tendency to to be dismissive of the more junior staff and on, 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 you know, they, they want to talk to the general partner because that's the decision maker. They, they have no, they don't seem to understand just how clearly and how powerful, you know, an associate with, with, with a deep interest in your company can get something over the line. All right. Cause they'll give you the time and they'll collect all the data and put it together perfectly for the pitch for the general partner where a general partner may not. Yeah. I was an analyst, I was an associate. You want, you want those people to be your promoters because they're constantly going to be thinking about your deal because they're, they're, you know, they're wanting to build their career. You know, the associates can't say yes, but they can make it a no. And so it's, it's incumbent on you to make sure that those people like are, are as excited about your deal as everybody else. Yeah. I mean, I think our favorite thing is to see uh, our analysts who graduate from the Ripple X program become analysts at another venture fund. Obviously, we were close with them at their very beginning of their career. Then they go to associate and then principal. And then all of a sudden, they're like the gatekeepers for us now who are close with us to share our deals with those other funds. Uh, and that's like just watching the ripple effect happening there is really cool to see uh, from people who gave a chance on when they had no access to venture capital. But speaking of the changes in venture capital, you've been around for a while. You've seen the ups and downs, uh, obviously, hopefully more ups and downs. You know, How has the Canadian venture capital industry evolved from your days at BDC and then scale up to see some of the best and the worst things about the industry in your opinion? It's been an interesting ride. Um, if you take my, like, from my very early days of investing, like, Canada's been a sort of a smiley face of, of, of a curve uh, to some extent. More recent years being a little bit higher than the previous years. But what people forget was, in some form or another, Canada was doing three or four, maybe even $5 billion worth of venture capital in, 20, in the year 2000. Uh, and by 2008, when I was raising my uh, my the, the, the funding for GAN systems we hit a low of sort of under 800 million and it's been up quasi up it was flat it was flat for a few years after that but it was like you know quasi up since then you know, year to year um, and then very dramatically in the past three so there's been lots of good things there was an emphasis on early stage company creation uh, in the early part of sort of 2010 to 2015 um, and you saw that borne out by the sheer number of companies that were that were started and raised capital in Canada, you're seeing that tail off, that emphasis tail off by the sort of the government players and and where it is today and and in the LP uh, focus in Canada as well. So you don't see as much company creation right now, and we are also seeing a number of our colleagues who were you know probably more focused on seed in the past grow their funds to a point where seed is less as the emphasis internally for them. So there's now less seed lead institutional players than there were five, six years ago in Canada, which is surprising because we have had an explosion of what I would call seed investors who are not necessarily lead checks or institutionalized. Angel list um, syndicates, uh, family, small family offices from, you know, exited founders or, or, or their staffs. Um, but you don't see, you know, strong you know, institutionally based seed investors right now. Well, it sounds like that's where the opportunity that obviously we saw at Ripple a couple of years ago is the same opportunity you're seeing now because you decided to obviously launch. Yeah. And I think I've seen it more now than I was even a few years ago when you guys got started. Like, I think, I think what, I think what we, you and I've seen is a lot of funds that were sitting on the, on that fence between seed, late seed and A just have firmly entrenched themselves in the A rounds and are letting the seed rounds come to them as they've graduated up to their A, um, their, A uh, their A rounds. You'll still hear about them doing it, so they don't they're not exited the space, but it's it is not a major part of their business, and it is probably 
a check mark like in, in a feature set rather than a focus. Like they have that feature, but it's not really what they do. Why do you think that is, Matt? I know I think I know why that is, and I would love to hear your thoughts first. There's a few. There's a few possible reasons um, that you could you could say, and I probably agree with all of them. Like you know, one, uh, seed is harder. It requires more time. You know, there's a lot less data points to go with, so it's a lot more of emphasis on um, what you value as an investor. You think you can bring, and what what you think the founders are capable of doing. So there's a bit of sort of betting on the horse and the jockey, but less on the horse. There's also the fact that as these funds get larger, it's harder for your your experienced uh, GPs and partners to continue to um, to do volume plays. Like so, you can you really, I think most most VCs would admit after about eight to ten deals their capacity to find new deals of, of high quality and still bring rigor to their boards declines. And so there there's less, there's less capability of them to do lots of C deals and lots of series A deals at the same time um, in, in one fund. And if you have multiple funds, which many of our, uh, our colleagues do as they graduate, you know, you have three funds, you have, let's say 25 to 35 deals in each fund and you have four or five partners. Yes. Yeah, so, it's a lot of work. You know, gra- many graduate away from you, but some don't. You're still sitting on those boards. So, yeah, I think I think there's a number of sort of reasons why these things happen. And there's also the LP focus. They, they've gotten more comfortable in Canada, uh, in particularly with you know, doing investments into venture, but their teams haven't grown any uh, larger either. So they're also trying to deploy significantly more amounts of capital. And they, they would rather do it into existing GPs that they have... Uh, relationships with. And so that means those funds get bigger and those funds need to do bigger deals. So they, they sort of gra- gravitate away from the seed stage. Yeah, you've answered it perfectly. It's the AUM game, right? As, as your AUM gets bigger, your fund size gets bigger. You just can't waste time on, you know, 500K or a million dollar seed checks. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, if you're, if you are a larger fund, if you were, if I was running a billion dollar fund, I'd still probably have a seed strategy as part of it but more from a Texas Hold'em kind of like emphasis where I do like lots of hands of, of poker um, and see which hands are graduating. And I wouldn't, necess- and if the hand doesn't look good, I just wouldn't show up for the next round, right? I'd fold and walk away from the table. You know, it's interesting though, Matt, the problem with that strategy, which I'm sure you agree with is, you know, what we think is that the the companies that take that capital, they don't actually get a lot of value out of those billion dollar funds early on. So you need firms like us to help them. No, but but I agree. I oh, I totally agree. I'm talking about if I was running the billion dollar fund. If I'm you know if I'm on the if I'm you know running my uh, command capital, which is what we're trying to do, I don't think that's a healthy place for the founder to go to get what they want. They're you know every founder thinks they're the outlier, so that they think that they will be that one in ten that 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 large billion dollar fund cares about in the next round, but they're very often are not. Honestly, they're looking at the metrics. They're not looking at you. Whereas the people like you and I who are in there in the trenches earlier on are looking at the people as well as the metrics. And it sort of bleeds into two or three different ways of, of sort of figuring out whether or not we're on the cusp of something versus whether or not the, the numbers are showing us what we know to be true in the business. If you're if you're running an Andreessen, this makes total sense. Um, and people will take Andreessen's money um, because they want the logo. It, it gets them the TechCrunch article or the BetaKit article when they raise the round. Like it's a, it's a, it's a checkmark of legitimacy that's not necessarily true because somebody's playing a different game, and, that, and that's fine. Um, but if it, but you and I both know that concentrated, uh, you know, focused investments at the earlier stage generally play better. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it, so let's dive into it. You know, you just recently announced the launch of Command Capital, spelled C M D with a former partner from Panache Ventures, David Dufres, as a seed stage focus fund looking to invest in startups in Canada. So can you share us you know, why you chose to focus on AI at the seed stage in particular? You obviously explained why there's a gap, but maybe focus on the strategy and the thesis. And also why you decided to announce the fund uh, announcement before holding a f- first close, I guess. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons. So, so I'll, I'll tackle the first part and I'll tackle the second part. Um, we, annou- we decided to announce it uh, earlier on because both David and I are you know, former guys at former places, there needed to be a sort of a line in the sand where the market was aware of the change. So I still sit on boards for, for some of my old uh, portfolio companies. And it, it was it was clear that while we were talking to LPs there was, and, and family offices, they would look at us and go, aren't you still at Panache? Are you still at Scale-Up, Matt? 
Um, but we needed to, we needed to sort of articulate a uh, line in the sand. Our due diligence program, like our, the due diligence work that needs to be done on us, is happening in tandem, and we wanted to make sure that it, we were you know, clearly delineated to those investment committees as they begin to dig in. That yes, we are doing this full time. Yes, this is our focus. Yes, this is what we're doing. It was just one of those things. We're well, we're very well known. Both Dave, Dave has been in the business as long as I have. I've known him, I've known him for almost twenty years now. It's just that uh, it's just that hey. You know, we've had this long history at other places, um, you know, which we, you know, I've just gone through. We just, we needed to clear the air. The focus on AI is, is where, you know, David was at the BlackBerry Venture Partners Fund um, previously. And one of the things that we both noticed as we sort of go through this cycle of what, what, when we started a year ago, we didn't think it was as much of a hype cycle, but it feels like it, is that what we what we saw is something similar. The tools were, be- were becoming cheaper and easier to use by technically savvy developers who are not, you know, focused entirely on the AI space. It was something similar to what we saw with mobile. Initially, you know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to build a mobile app, you had to be much more in the weeds on how the development um, SDKs worked on in each individual uh, system. Today, you just download it from Apple or, or from Google and you can develop a mobile app in about 15 minutes. We were watching the capability of like all of the AI, you know, technical like APIs coming on board and people beginning to play that with them inside of, you know, generalist type, um, you know, applications. So we were seeing this sort of opportunity where the wedge technology 15 years ago was using mobile to sort of go into enterprise, providing a mobile version of an enterprise product, using that as your wedge. So going mobile first, uh, as you'll remember using that as your wedge to get the customer and then slowly creep up the feature set band. AI, the AI space is going through something similar. It's, it's where you start to see a lot of the AI components becoming available or commoditized, coming down into you know applications that wouldn't have necessarily been the first port of call for an AI solution, but people are taking advantage of what's available today and slowly building up those feature sets in the AI space for those individual sort of sectors of, the, of, of, of their customer base. And would you say anything that touches AI from like consumer to, like you said, mobile applications to media, entertainment, travel, like you don't have a specific focus on enterprise SaaS or insurance, health tech, or? Well, I'd say we're B2B and more enterprise biased. And that's just because of the nature of where we are in the world. Like I haven't yet to see consumer products come out of Canada with, with major success. Um, there are exceptions to that statement, but like they're few and par- far between. Uh, so I don't think you'll see us in a, you know, B2C or a consumer based, you know, product line. Given that you obviously are a seed stage focused investor and, you know, maybe the lack of pre-seed and seed stage focused investors retreating from the market, especially in Canada, you know, how do you think that's affecting the Canadian entrepreneur from building their startups today versus maybe a couple of years ago? Let's be frank. Most there's two types of entrepreneurs out there. There's the you know sector specific, experienced, age 30, 35 plus that they've done. They they have good knowledge of their of their customer base, and they have a good knowledge of what the first customer is going to look like, and they build something for them. Those people are not stopping. They're continuing to do it, and they usually have some level of personal wealth, having worked somewhere for a number of years. We're that that's not slowing down. I'm still seeing those those founders. I'm seeing a lot much less of the sort of uh, start something straight out of school or one or two years um, out of uh, out of like a Shopify or an Amazon where they're they're like, I'm going to quit this job or quit the job at a Deloitte and go down the street and start a tech company and see, see how this goes. A number of factors are hitting that. One, they don't see easy access to accelerators or to $250,000 checks to help them. They're also dealing with student loans that are growing much more quickly under an interest rate that's much higher. So they're much less, uh, they're a little more fearful about uh, of jumping out the door with, with you know, the, uh, the debts that they have to pay off. Over the past six, seven years, we haven't done a great job of giving them a sense of what kind of companies should get funded versus what company kind of companies are. There was a lot of sort of hype cycle around, you know, sort of crypto and, and even now in AI. And they, it looks like a hype cycle rather than, you know, a strong investment thesis around, you know, revenue generating products. I don't think they know what to build and for whom. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of companies trying to do 
fake companies that look interesting, but are but not building anything of any real substance. So is it fair to say you you gravitate more towards the uh, a bit more established, experienced founder building something they know needs to be built with a bit of wealth? I'm not necessarily. No, no. I, I invested. In fact, I invested in a 21 year old you know, founder out of out of uh, uh, McGill, uh, and we started Sonder together. Right. So I'll do early stage, uh, early fresh founders. But I'm, I've just noticed that the 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 ones who are building businesses that um, have a deep sort of focus on the customer. Are, are much tougher to much tougher to work with right now because they're just not out there as much, right? Yeah, I'd say like the fun entrepreneurs are kind of done, you know, who are in it for the the touristy part of it. I'd say the ones who are really passionate about building something interesting, they may not know the customer to start with, but what they do know is that they could build it pretty quickly and pretty cheaply uh, because of the tools available with AI right now and co-pilots and things like that, which is really exciting. And, the, and those are the, those are the interesting ones, right? It's, it's, it, but it's interesting to see where they think it's going to go next. It's okay. You've got that customer, that first customer. You've got you're using the API. You know this is not this is not the hard part, guys. It's where do you take this product in order to defend defend it with a moat or defend it with you know some um, some sort of IP that or 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 just the ability to get you know um, a solution into customer hand at scale. That will allow you to build a venture scale business. Those are where the question marks start to pop up. So let's get into that then. You know, how do you think that command capital can provide necessary support to startups beyond obviously the financial investing at the earliest stages during these tough market conditions? Well, uh, signaling to some extent, right? So uh, right now, like let's let's back up and say there there, there is a capital problem still, um, which, which which we have an allude to, which is that lead check that that you're you're solving and I'm trying to solve, right? You and I would, would probably notice that we meet numerous founders who have been told they're able to raise the money they 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 want if they find that if they find that lead and that lead is becoming less and less forthcoming um, in this particular market. So there is sort of a rigor that we're going to bring to our due diligence process and to our signaling out into the market. We our goal is to only lead our our deals. There is or co lead obviously uh, to work with our partners like yourself and others. But you know the others are you know count on one hand um, in in this in this kind of you know country right now, and that's the that's the problem we have. And then at the same time, you know identifying how to build a company from you know six people, seven people to the twenty or thirty that it's going to necessarily have to be. We've that's that's where David and I have shined over the past you know fifteen years of our careers is building a level of growth into the company, getting revenues from sub 250k up to about three to four million dollars through inside sales through resellers through enterprise sales uh, you know systems that we've done into the corporates that i've been working with while i was at scale up as well yeah i mean you've seen a lot you've been a part of some pretty high flying companies and had to go through some tough times with companies as well you know you went through oh, fuck, yeah. Saunders. Yeah, it's been a, it's tough out there right exactly now. Yeah. so what sort of advice would you uh give to somebody who's just starting out in the business maybe as an associate or as a junior principal who hasn't yet experienced a lot of those downs that you obviously had to face, especially during the pandemic with a lot of travel companies or a lot of marketplace companies? Well, I, I got burned on a marketplace company and, and we got pound, um, beat up hard in a, in a, in the hospitality space. So the advice, if I can, is, is understand the macro more than I think people give it credit for. These were all, all the risks that, that uh, popped up over the past three years for me were risks that were identified in the IM uh, the day we did the first check. And they were the sort of um, Cassandra statements, if you will. Like, I, I worry about this world-ending event, the, the zombie apocalypse um, sort of event. It turns out there was a pandemic, so it was actually pretty smart. Um, but, we, you know, at, at first, for example, with Sonder, we, we called it the two risks, um, a huge economic downturn or another terrorist event vis-a-vis -vis like a September 11th. Those are the two major sort of systems that we could look at and say, okay, these could have huge ramifications for the business. So when we were building our, our, our leases for the properties that we used in that company, we had structure in them so that we could get out should some, one of those two types of events occur. We didn't expect both. So we had a, a 9-11 event, which was the initial sort of crash of... <laughs> You know, fall off zero to zero travel for a number of uh, for a number of months, and then you had the curve come back up, but you had essentially an economic hit on travel 
in the hospitality space that looked like the financial crisis. So we had both hit us at the same time. And actually, the company did quite well throughout, and it's and it, it's done phen- uh, phenomenally well since in terms of its growth rate and its unit cost economics and its revenue growth as well. Where where uh, the next thing that hit us was the massive change in the multiples in the macro market that hit us once we uh, did this back on public. These things all almost happen near the very end, I guess, of your time with the companies. You know, because you're investing at the pre-seed stage, it's good to be aware of these things and understand the macros, but they're so far out. And and probably you know find your exits where you can because we did have opportunities to find uh, secondary opportunities and and scale up. Um, is is blessed with a very high DPI, you know, in, in terms of where we are today. But but at the same time, had we been more um, happy, we more focused on the DPI, perhaps a year ago, that DPI would be much higher today. Would that be something you would take to your newest fund? Is that like knowing how to return capital, not just have good TVPI, is something to to be uh, focused on? Yeah, I th- well, I think I think it is. I think in a, I think it's incumbent in every seed fund. Seed funds like sort the scale up was a seed Series A with a growth with a growth sort of uh, bias. So it was a little bit of a different beast than what we're talking about at command. At command, I would be more focused on finding uh, finding our secondaries. You know, you know, in the Series Bs and Cs, than I would have been at scale up, where we were sometimes coming in at the A and doing a Series B exit seemed a little bit. Like we're selling a little bit too early, whereas you know, with with command, you're coming in the seed. You'll have an A round, a B round. You can start looking for those exits. Well, that was a hundred million dollar fund at scale up too, right? So yeah, and this one will be you know half that. It's easier to return those numbers, and you can do it more quickly. And you and you you'll and you'll have a lot of early winners that look like winners because they're being signaled by outside valuations from third parties. I wouldn't put as much. Um, I will. My advice would be, and I know this, but I, I would. My advice to a principal is, I wouldn't put as much faith in those valuations until you know you can get liquidity from them. A hundred percent. I mean, we've done the exact same thing in our first fund and returned half the fund because of those crazy valuations to allow us to do secondaries. So same thing at scale. We 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 have two or three uh, uh, deals that we know. You know, we want to ride out, and then we have a, a number of deals that. You know, we'll take our we'll take some liquidity where we where we see those opportunities as long as it doesn't impinge the management's ability to raise. Absolutely. You know, speaking of looking ahead, you know, what are some of the biggest trends or changes you foresee happening in the venture capital space in Canada, particularly? You know, given the current challenging macro environment, and where do you think we'll come out maybe in the next two to three years? Well, if, if you can tell the future in the next two or three years, come on. Um, I don't know. Uh, high level. I'm watching. I'm watching our LP friends and seeing what they're able to raise for their particular funds. I, you know, we're down market from them, but I think I'm. I see. I see struggles, um, and I think the struggles are. I don't think we've seen the full uh, accounting of what took place over the past three years hit all of the GPs that are in those portfolios today. So there's a a number of funds out there that were who raised their fund in, with a 2020 or 2021 vintage who did significant deployments in 2021 and 2022. The 18-month mark from those is coming up in Q3, Q4, Q1 next year. So you're going to see a, uh, more write-downs, I think, coming in those. So the, I think you're going to find that the, L, the, LP, the LPs are a little bit skittish about A, being able to raise, and B, where they want to deploy. And leaning back, it's not a crime to, to in their worlds to be slower. So I think we're going to see slower deployments from the LPs in in the in the Q3 and Q4, which is not great for me because I'm fundraising from them right now. Yeah, likewise. But hey, maybe it'll be like Terry Matthews missing the Shopify opportunity, and they have to uh, think twice about I, that. And I think some of them are. I think we're. All, I think this vintage will be good because there is a uh, there's a sort of a um, lack of of people on the ground doing great deals right now. I don't know where interest rates are, are going to land in the next, you know, two years, and that that would that the sort of defines any sort of this um, sort of answer for you. you know, the second part of that question is what do you think is going to happen two three years from now? I think it's a yeah yeah. That's why you always got to think about the macro, even if we're pre seed investors. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, if 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 macro trends have an effect on the ability of people to quit their jobs to start businesses, uh, that's not great. You know, the 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 old discussion used to be. I don't know if, if you recall, but when uh, when BlackBerry went bankrupt, everybody was like, "Oh, there's gonna be thousands of little startups that come out of that." And there were a few, but like not thousands, not lots. 
No, because people had to pay their bills and like, you know, pay their life insurance. Many of them were not particularly entrepreneurial. They were they were in tech, but they were, that does not mean you're entrepreneurial. We've seen what thousands of layoffs from Shopify over the past how many months? Quarters. And I can't say that I've seen tons and tons of Shopify ex-employees starting businesses. I am seeing them, but I'm not 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 like um No, you know where they're going to work? They're going to work at the banks and Shopify Drug Mart and the insurance companies because it's it's a safety net. Absolutely. So, so you know, company creation doesn't come through layoffs is probably what we've all learned. And as more layoffs happen, people, um, you know, focus in on stability rather than, than early stage. So that does not mean it's easier to hire. So I think companies that don't have cash in their banks or are not forthcoming about how they look financially are going to have, the, the, there's going to be a mix of difficulty finding those jobs. And people are going to hop to stability more than they're more than they, we think. Absolutely. Well, we all wish them luck in raising their funds and hopefully allows us to get back to business. But before we wrap things up, Matt, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Uh, I've been listening. To, I was listening to the history podcast. Hold on. I can't remember the guy's name right now, but I was, I was spent like I, I was on a flight yesterday and just like lost in that. Which uh, are you like World War One? The world I'm doing the the yeah the I know I'm doing Supernova in the East or something like that. It's it's the Russian campaign. Oh yeah, Dan you know, Carlin. Yeah, Dan Carlin. That's the guy's name. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, favorite newsletter or blog? Well, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying the uh, I, I'm enjoying Paul Wells. So I'm not sure if you know that. He's a political writer. He used to work for McLean's. He started a new newsletter, and then there's also Mark McQueen, who uh, who I'm a big fan of. Okay, let's just talk about that for a second. You wrote an incredible blog about why Mark should run for. You know, public office. How much did you talk to Mark ahead of time before you put that out? I teased Mark with it um, a little bit. So I think when uh, a few, I would every time I heard that there was a riding with, that was looking for a for a leader, I'd send him real estate <laughs> of those that, that in that riding to go move to. So I'd like find something on you know House Sigma and send him. Hey, you could afford this house in. Timbuktu, Ontario, and and because uh, you know Mark, you, you've uh, you've had Mark on the on the program. I know I have a very high opinion of Mark. Like Mark's a successful entrepreneur. He's a successful man, but um, his he he is beyond reproach in my mind about how how fair and reasonable he is, and how you can't. I, I wouldn't impinge his integrity at all. Absolutely, someone like that is is somebody we want in Parliament. Um, and I feel like somebody like that is never encouraged and doesn't see the upside to uh, run for parliament. It's incumbent on people like us um, who know people like this to encourage them to run, which whichever political party they're they're sort of focused on. It just so happens that Mark and I share political ideologies, but I know people who I firmly believe would make they're, they they support the NDP. I don't, but I support them because I think they're just good people, and I want those good people to run. And I think for the tech community in particular, people like um, you, me, VCs and entrepreneurs, there's nobody um, that I can point to that clearly understands our business and what we're trying to do here in government today on either in any political party. There are people who are sympathetic to our needs, but they they don't understand why why it's really important. No, absolutely. Mark, would I, I told him on the podcast, I don't wish it upon you to have the job, but I would love to see someone like you in the job. Absolutely. And, and, and Mark's just a good, good guy. Like, and, and, and he's available too. That's also kind of like, you know, he's, 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 he's got a podcast. He's got a news, uh, news. He's got a newsletter. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get him on the podcast more to speak, but he doesn't seem to want to uh, spend too much time talking to me versus doing more tweets. He's at a program. He's at a program concert, concert or something. Concert, exactly. Right? Speaking of tweets, actually, you had a, a pretty famous tweet that happened a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about the commercial real estate crisis in San Francisco <laughs> and you had David Sachs, reply and retweet and then elon musk come at it how did that feel for you it so it happened the same day we announced the fund so it my my phone kind of went from like congratulations from people i knew to a bunch of weird messages from lots of random people i ended up with lots more followers who i think are very disappointed by my canadian <laughs> content focus on on my on my tweets and they're slowly i think going to start unsubscribing as they start figuring it out yeah it was pretty cool though it was pretty cool. Uh, it, it, you know, it was it, one of the main problems, uh, we're, we, as we were talking about earlier, with the interest rates and where they're going is, is I have a distinct feeling that there's something wrong in the in the commercial real estate market. I think we all know um, if you, you and I walk downtown in Toronto and you, if you were at five o'clock, if you stood at, you know, you know uh, Adelaide and uh, Bay, 
you would get bowled over by all the people leaving the businesses uh, as they went to, to catch the train to get home out of the city. Today, it's empty. That is a huge concern for what those buildings where all those people used to work, you know, are worth. Um, and our pension plans, um, all Canadian pension plans, um, are invested in real estate. It, I was, I was, I'm very concerned, and I, I'm looking for signs of it. That's what I, that's what I was writing about. That's what uh, Cohen, uh, oh, sorry, David Sachs uh, found out about because uh, he saw the tweet. Well, it was a good tweet. You got 1.2 million impressions. So I'm sure that was a pretty big highlight on top That's of it. That's pretty good. That much, exactly. eh? Yeah, I didn't bad. realize it was that many. Wow. All right. Moving on. Your favorite tech gadget? Probably probably my phone at this point. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm impressed with the cameras on it. I have a, a baby boy who, well, let's less, be less, more of a toddler now. I was about 14, 15 months old and, uh, I'm just impressed by how it makes me look like I know what I'm doing with a, with a with the pictures. Like I, I take these great pictures of him and I'm not sure how it works because all the, maybe it's just, he's a cute boy and that's what makes it look good. Oh yeah, no, he is. He, he looks like my wife, <laughs> but like, you know, but the backgrounds are all bokeh and stuff. It's very impressive. So fantastic. Favorite new trend. Probably um, the focus on revenue. Oh, I'm seeing from founders. Nice. I like. I'm liking this trend. There was a long time when I was. I felt like an old fart in these meetings, sort of talking about first customers, and now most of them volunteering who the first customers are going to be. They come to the table ready to answer that question, which is good. Yeah, maybe they know who I am, and they've heard something me talk about it before. But it's just great to see founders like really interested in selling things for a change. (laughs) Your reputation precedes you. Uh, Next is your favorite book. Zero to one is always a perennial seller. I give every year I choose a book and I give it away. And and so zero to one was one of those, you know, five, six years ago. I'm actually going through seven powers. I'm showing it here on the screen, but nobody else. Yeah, right there it is. And which is probably, it was one of the books I gave away back in 2016, 2017, I think, right when I was joining Scale Up. I, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading a guy named Tom Holland's book about Christianity of all things right now. It's very interesting to find out just how much of our world is uh, with this Christianity book, uh, just how much it's a history book, but how much of our world is, you know, influenced by religion on things you and I would never think. I'm always surprised by weird, oh, that we're doing this because it's religious, but I always thought it was just right. Death, taxes, what else? Christmas (laughs) trees. Everything. Yeah. Christmas trees. Yeah, exactly. I I thought it was just some weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Honestly, to uh, to try something new every day, it, be it read something new, look at something new, try something. If you see an opportunity to do anything new, try it. Just do it. Well, fantastic life lesson and onto something new with your new fund at Command Capital. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Matt. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at MattyBCohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.